You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 74. Today, I talk with Dr. Angelina Posoyev. She is an amazing surgeon who went from an immigrant not speaking English to co-owner of four surgery centers. You are going to be so inspired by her story. She never lets anything get in her way. Her determination, her ability to see past any obstacle, and simply her vision is inspiring. Enjoy the show, and don't forget to check out bosssurgery.com If you're interested in joining the course, it's complicated. It's time to learn a better way to deal with complications. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have here with me Dr. Angelina Postev. I saw a post that was talking about developing surgery centers. And, you know, she mentioned that, oh yeah, you know, I've got a few. And I was like, she's got a story I want to hear about. And so we're going to talk today about what her journey has been like, and she's going to share some of her experiences. So, but first off, uh, Dr. Postev, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Hey, it's- well, first of all, thank you for having me here. Um, about myself, so I'm an immigrant. I came to America when I was 15. I didn't speak English at the time. So the beginning journey was a little bit kind of rocky. You know, I didn't know what I'm going to do since I didn't speak English. It's kind of like, I want to go to medical school, but I don't speak English. So obviously it all improved with time, went to college, did all the stuff I needed to do. And I always kind of found a way to get to my goal, to get to my dream, maybe by roundabout route. Um, I never took MCAT to start with because <laughs> I knew there's no way I'm going to pass the English part of it. Like my English was just not that good. Um, so I found a Caribbean school to go to, found out about those also through friends. You know, it's always kind of like I find a way to get there. Um, and it's not necessarily like an evil plot of any way. It just kind of, like you know, you keep pushing, you fall into somewhere. Yeah. I keep trying basically. Um, and when I called the Caribbean school, they're like, well, by now I actually do require for you to, to get MCAT now. They used to not do that. I'm like, well, if I'm going to do that, I'm not going to go to your school. So I basically pushed my way through there too. You know, same thing with residency. I did end up on Cleveland Clinic for my residency. So things worked out well, um, not for the lack of work, but just kind of, you know, keep trying, keep pushing. And when we finished Cleveland Clinic, we as in me and my husband, because we trained together, we realized we don't want to stay in a large institution because we want to do so much more than we could under the supervision of the big entity like that. So we moved to middle of nowhere, Georgia for no particular reason. We didn't have anybody here, uh, started our own private practice. And that's where kind of the big plan of growth started. Now, before we get to that, you know, what country did you come from and when did you come here? I moved here from Russia mm-hmm. uh, as Jewish uh, refugee, and obviously with my family, we all moved here, and that was back in 1994, so it's been 29 years. And what made you want to become uh, a doctor? Again, I didn't have any particular story necessarily. It's just I always knew I was going to be in some kind of healthcare since I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, so it's you know one of the reasons I hated personal statements. I don't have a reason. I knew I'll be good at it. 
Yeah. I mean, I love that your determination for it. It's like, you know, that absolute certainty of, I know this is what I'm going to do and nothing in my way is going to stop me. And there's just something really compelling about that too, because, you know, it's different than the path of, I'm just going to follow A and B and C. And yours was, I have, you know, the end goal in mind and nothing that comes along my way is going to deter me, not your silly little test, not a statement. No, not the lack of English. Yes, not the lack of English. And, you know, I think that in itself is is so huge to overcome. I mean, you come to another country, you don't speak the language as much, and you're so determined and certain that this is going to be my path, that there's absolutely nothing that's going to stop me to do so. Where did you get all that fortitude? I was born like this. <laughs> I it love it. When, it started when I was a kid. I did the same thing with my um, going to the first grade. You know, usually in Russia, kids start first grade at seven years old. Um, I was always a year younger, even in my daycare program. And then everybody graduates and goes to school and they didn't take me because age restriction. Um, I refused to go back to daycare. So my mom had to go to all this, I don't know, regional places to get permission to send me to first grade. When I was six, I went to first grade three days late because of it, but I did go and I stayed. Mm -hmm. So I kind of have that genetic predisposition, I guess, to be stubborn. Yeah. And what were some of the challenges that came up to you as an immigrant? You know, what were all the challenges that you came up against? I mean, number one, I didn't know anything about the system. I was 15. I didn't speak English. Like I did not. That's all I could say. I don't speak English. Basically, that was extent of it. I didn't know how the system worked. I didn't know anything about the extra test. I didn't know anything about any scholarships. So it's literally like a blind kitten. I had no guidance. I didn't have any counselors. And even if I did, I wouldn't understand what they're telling me anyway. So I that was, I guess, a challenge looking back that I had to find my own way. Um, I did start with community college to start with because I always see that's one of the things I mention all the time because... Even now, I see a lot of people trying to get people in this, like, you know, expensive Ivy League schools. I was like, you don't really have to, um, especially if you don't have the money for it. Um, I started community college because why would I waste my money going to Ohio State? I was in Ohio in Columbus um, to take English as second language classes, you know. So I slowly progressed. and But it was a challenge to figure all of this out. Um I didn't know anything about SATs, SATs. I didn't need them because, again, I went to community college first and transferred out to Ohio State <laughs> to mm -hmm. graduate from there with my major. So everything was, I guess, an extra step in a way. Um, again, it was a roundabout way getting where I needed to go. Um, and I'm sure if I spoke English, if I had connections since, you know, if I went to middle school and high school here, I would know so much more of who to ask, what to do, right? Uh, financial situation. I had to work three jobs in undergrad to pay for my undergrad. I didn't have anybody supporting me. My par parents were in the same place. They were immigrants. They didn't speak English. They couldn't even work their jobs because my mom was a teacher of Russian and Russian literature. <laughs> you can't really teach that if you don't speak English. Um, you know, so it's everything was just kind of a little extra step that I had to do. Sure. And so it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you had to overcome financial challenges and also, you know, the, the language challenge. Uh, I completely agree with you when it comes to the community college, you know, especially like I'm in Tennessee and the first two years of community college are free. And that really lowers the barrier of entry to people to 
get these, you know, higher degrees, but it really is about the information and your willingness to do this. And, you know, I'm definitely a huge fan of however you can get the education possible, that it doesn't necessarily have to be at such a high ticket cost that's going to hurt you in the end. Absolutely. Now, take us through the, going to the, the Caribbean uh, medical school. What was that like for you? I loved it. It was, I uh, went to Ross University, so I'm sure a lot of people heard of that one. It's a big one. Um, again, I was not sure if I go, but then at the time, a friend of mine was applying to that same school. And I've, I've heard about it already, but I didn't make that step yet. And then a friend was going, I was like, I'll just go with you. <laughs> like a little blonde, like, like it's hard, I'll go. Um, and I did really well because in undergrad, I don't think I was concentrating so much on my grades because I had three jobs. I was passing. I had my A's and B's occasionally even C, I think like in subjects that I actually know, like math, I was in math and physics class when I was in high school in Russia, but I moved here because of language barrier. Math was not a thing I could follow very well anymore. <laughs> um, but it was not like the goal, but once I went to actual medical school, I had to, of course, take all the loans on my own name. Um, I didn't have anybody to co-sign for me, and it's a lot of private loans as well. And all of a sudden, I was like a straight-A student. I was like, oh, this is fun. I can do this. Um, so I did not mind my Caribbean experience. Plus, you know, the challenges of living on the island for two years or 16 months um, for a lot of people who come from America is that they're not used to water outages or electricity outages or things like that. I grew up with that. So for me, it was totally fine. <laughs> you know, you're training your whole life for it. Exactly. So those things did not bother me. I was in, you know, exotic location, nature island. Um, and I just studied. Like, I just applied my thing that my mom, like, since I was a kid, if you play piano, I want to hear six hours a day. If you dance, six hours a day. The one that, like, the, the standard Russian, you know, you're going to do it until, like, you can't anymore. So I was like, I'm just going to study six hours a day. Like, that's all I did. I didn't travel. I didn't go anywhere. I just did what I came there to do. And how did you know that you wanted to become a surgeon? How did that path go? That came about more in the rotations and clinicals. I loved neurology um, when I was doing basic science. And I was like, I'll try this out. And everyone was like, you're going to be bored out of your mind. I'm like, I'm going to I'm gonna try it. And when I did neurology rotation, I was like, yeah. It's fun, but definitely not for me. I need something more hands-on. And then when I did internal medicine, I'm like, if I survive this, I'm definitely going to gastroenterology and I'll have to do the fellowship no matter what. Um, and I love the GI stuff. So then when I got to surgery, I was like, okay, forget everything else. Surgery is my thing. I'm definitely doing this. <laughs> so it was really just doing the rotations and experiencing them that led me to the surgical specialty. And you are a general surgeon, is that right? So my first, yes, so I did the adrenal surgery residency training. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the way the program was set up was really heavily trained in trauma, endoscopy, and colorectal surgery for me. Um, I did at least nine months of colorectal surgery training at Cleveland Clinic. So that kind of really opened me up to anything. And my fellowship, my first one was in critical care, surgical critical care. And then we went into private practice with that training. So that means we did everything. And then later on, I went back and did another fellowship in cosmetic surgery. Got it. And so after getting this fellowship in cosmetic surgery, was this before you went to Georgia or afterwards? It was while I was in Georgia. I was already in private practice for about five years when I went back to do another year of fellowship. 
What were your challenges in private practice? Well, starting it from scratch. <laughs> yes. Um, basically, you know, we moved and again, everybody asked, how did we find this place? It was probably one of the recruiters that reached out and said, you know, that hospital out there in the middle of nowhere looking for somebody. So we moved from a place like Cleveland Clinic, where both of us were on staff. My husband was there full-time staff and I was um, like a moonlighter on the weekends while I was in fellowship. Um, and you move from that huge hospital system to this little tiny hospital 55 miles away from Atlanta with two operating rooms and, you know, I think like 70 bad hospital mm -hmm. where everybody kind of like, you know, first of all, what are you doing? What are you two doing here? And literally I had other doctors that I've never met, like doctors who've been there for many years, internal medicine doctors that rounded in the hospital. And I would meet them in the little cubicle when you write your notes. And I would say, hey, you know, I was like, I'm, hello, it's me. I'm going to introduce myself to everybody. And literally the reaction was, hmm, I've heard about you. <laughs> I did not know how to respond to this. I'm like, is that good or bad? <laughs> like, wh what is happening here? <laughs> so there was a lot of resistance to new people in the little hospital. Interesting. How did you overcome that? We just kept doing what we're doing. Yeah. We kept doing what we're doing. There was a lot of uh, people questioning why two of you starting here. There's a lot of surgeons around this area. There were surgeons um, in the nearby other hospitals. Uh, maybe one is 20-mile direction. The other one is 12-mile direction. But it's all kind of hospital system that ha had other surgeons who've been there for many years. And people always questioned, why are you here? There's no way you can grow. Um and of course, we started doing all the high tech stuff right away in you know, robotic surgery, endoscopic surgery, all the things that people in little towns usually don't do. And then we got questioned a lot when we joined slightly bigger hospitals on staff. Uh, we would get uh, written up all the time. Why did you do this procedure this way? Even though that's what we've been doing in training for many years now. Um, and my husband would literally write like dissertations overnight, like 10, 20 page papers on explaining with attached documentation of how this is the standard of care these days. Mm -hmm. uh, but they wanted to question every little thing just to make your life more miserable, I assume. Yeah. How did that go? I mean, how did you manage your mind around that? Because it can be difficult if, you know, you're working up against a system that doesn't understand why you're there. We just kept going and eventually that's what pushed us it pushed us into opening our own surgery center mm -hmm. so we opened up in august of 2011 uh we were renting our first space for the first year but there was that building that we drove by even as we were doing interviews in those places we drove by this big building and we we're like this is very pretty let's find out what it does it was empty building and my husband's like it's gonna be ours and a year later we did buy that building and there was enough space to build a surgery center in it. And by 2013, 2012, 2013, we were doing small office procedures in our facility. And by 2014, we had accredited surgery center. So within first two and a half, three years, we were able to move majority of our surgical procedures into our own space. And that's how we overcame the hospital systems who were really pushy against us. And what would you do in your surgery center, in this first surgery center that you had? What were the procedures that you were were doing? Um, anything from gallbladder removals to hernia repairs, all the laparoscopic surgeries that we could do in outpatient setting. 
um, any local procedures and sedation procedures like uh, lipoma removals and, you know, any lumps and bumps, any bread and butter general surgery. Uh, we have done uh, colonoscopy, of course, the full endoscopy uh, suite. So endoscopy, upper lower endoscopies. Um, we've done some actually appendectomies as well, because a lot of local urgent care centers would refer to us uninsured patients, and we specialize in that. So we do a lot of uninsured procedures uh, for patients for self-pay. And also we did work with a charity organization. So we did some free surgeries. Um, we've done, at this point, we do gastric bypass, gastric sleeve, all the endoscopic uh, bariatric surgery, and of course, all the cosmetic surgery, tummy tucks and so on. What were your biggest barriers to, you know, opening up this uh, surgery center? What were your biggest barriers? Well, I don't think I look at things like barriers at this point. It's more what needs to be done and let's do it. So I think that's maybe one of the things we could talk about is stop looking at things as barriers. Hmm. So I don't think the objectives to overcome. Yes. It's more, you know, it's a challenge. Yes. It's a step we need to do. Some of that was learning, you know, all the legalities of it, right? We had to hire um, a consultant that they're going to walk us through how we're going to do it, how we're going to set up the financial situation, how we're going to set up, you know, hiring architects and all the appropriate things we need to do to make it a appropriate accredited surgery center. But again, it's not really a barrier, right? It's more time-consuming activity, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's doable. Yes. And I know a lot of times when you have something like that, it's essentially, you know, there's a lot of overwhelm, but really you just make a list of all the stuff you have to do. And then you just cross off the things as you can do it. (laughs) Basically. And I apply that to everything, make a list. Um, So we were working with like, for example, SBA provided a person who could come in and say, okay, let's do your projections. How's our financial situation looking? We have two surgeons. What are we expecting to do? What is our plan? Where's our marketing plan? What do we expect to make the next five years? You know, so every year got projected out on what ex- what are we expecting our growth? Uh, are we expecting to bring more surgeons, with, which which we did in 2012, 2013, and 2014? We added new surgeon every year to our practice for growth. Um, what are financial challenges? Challenges? How is bank gonna? You know, how we're going to borrow the money from the bank. So we always use banks to help us expand. And, you know, what are we going to use for collateral? And then what's the next step? You know, we're going to use our own surgery center that we're building as a collateral for, for that surgery center. How are we going to get all the equipment? You know, we have to buy all brand new stuff. Can we use stuff, you know, buy used stuff on the used market? Yes, we can to start with, to get it started with, and then we can upgrade as we go along. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and with appropriate help, which it's okay to get, you know, you can ask, you can hire people who are going to help you. It's not free, but it's worth it at the end. Right. And it seems like you had a really good eye on what your return on investment was going to be for each of these uh, aspects that you were looking for. Yes. And you can definitely project uh, what you currently make, what you will make with the growth. Um, They're experts who can help you with that as well. And those banks even can provide help uh, because they work with people like us all the time. So they know those projections. And I think that's a great lesson because, you know, we feel like we have to do all our 
ourselves and it gets a little overwhelming. And even just finding the right person to figure this information out can be a bit of a challenge. So it sounds like, you know, the bank was a good source for you for finding these people. How else did you find who you needed to find to answer your questions? We, well, my husband probably did most of it because he he's the, the mastermind really in building I, the because I, I was I was not doubt that to start with. I was not businessy to start with. I probably would be stuck at least for the first little while as an employee of a big hospital by myself. Um but now uh, there's no way. So I definitely learned a lot along the way. But it just you know when you start working in a system you start asking questions you get uh, let's say bank to start with they might refer you to somebody those people gonna refer you to somebody else and you interview those people you talk to them, what's your experience? Who else have you built? Uh, who else have you helped? You can call those people and ask them, how did it go for you? It's okay to ask questions. Most people don't mind sharing, you know? There were several other doctors in the area. There was a urologist that was kind of going through the same thing. He was building his own um, empire of surgical centers in the urology world. And, you know, we exchange information all the time. Um, there are other doctors in the area who are willing to share their contacts. And we basically just, same thing, just keep trying until you find somebody who you believe you can trust and who's going to work well with you. And if you don't like how they work, you fire them and you hire somebody else. And that's what becomes to the business part of it, right? I love how, you know, it's, it's very formulaic and simple. And I mean, really, honestly, that's what a business is, you know, that it, it sounds like I see an objective, I overcome it, you know, this doesn't work, let's try this, let's come up with something new. And I do have to challenge, I, you know, your husband being the mastermind, because in the few minutes that we've talked, I don't buy that for a second. <laughs> well, he, did, he did get his MBA um, in 2013. So also after, you know, we moved here as the process started and we realized we're going to need some good business background. So he actually did do his biz, uh, MBA as we were starting up as well. And having done, you know, started my own private practice uh, myself and then all the challenges that come up, you have to have that indomitable spirit and that ability to overcome any challenge and not to consider anything as a failure or a barrier. And you certainly have that in spades for sure. Thank you. Now, take us through like, so now you've opened one surgery center. How has it progressed since then? We have four. We now have four. We progressed. So we had multiple offices throughout the whole time, even before surgery center, because we knew we had to uh, expose ourselves and treat patients from much wider area than the little town that we were based on. Um, we were at the edge of Metro Atlanta. So all of the people lived the other direction. And most people usually moved into the city for services rather just outside of it, even though it's closer for them. So I, at some point I had about seven um, different locations, seven offices where I would see patients and they were usually nearby seven hospitals I had privileges in to operate um, all within anywhere between eight to 50 miles away from my office. And I would do, I would call it tour the, the Georgia. <laughs> I would go about 160 mile circle sometimes in a day going from location to location to location to see patients and sometimes do procedure and moved on next, you know, and next and next and next. Um, since then, when we started doing more marketing and evaluations, we realized for the procedures that we were doing, which were a more like high tech procedures that nobody else in the state of Georgia was doing, uh, 
people wanted to get the service, but then when they see the zip code and they'll see Loganville, Georgia, they would click out. They didn't want to come all the way to Loganville without necessarily knowing us. And because of that, we were kind of forced into opening an office and location in Atlanta, in the city. So that's our second surgery center that we just opened up in October 2019. Of course, it took a year to build it, but we've been looking for that air for quite some time. And once you get into those large cities, of course, it's much harder. It's more expensive. So we opened up our second locations there, second location there. And then from that point on, we opened two locations in Florida as well. So and all of that to basically attract different population of patients, uh, people who travel, much easier to fly into a city, you know, in Atlanta and see us there. And uh, we do have patients flying in from all over the United States to come for services. Well, I'm fascinated. How on earth are you in 10 places at once? <laughs> How does that well, work? We, we have now nine surgeons. Mm-hmm. So uh, we do hire uh, more people. So that way we don't have to travel as much. I was going to ask, you know, how, um, what is daily, or I should say, what does a typical week look like for you? Well, at this point, pretty straightforward. I am trying to get a day off from uh, seeing patients. It hasn't worked yet. I am in the process of getting Mondays off. I'm very excited about it, but slowly. Uh, but yet generally I see patients uh, Monday through Thursday in my main location in Loganville. And two of those days are my surgical days. And of course, I still do procedures in the office in between. And Fridays, I usually go to Buckhead, which is in, in the city in Atlanta. And about once a month, every six weeks, I would fly down to my Florida location to do some uh, minor procedures there. For my husband, he flies to Tampa weekly most of the time uh, for bariatric surgery um, office there. So, and then in between, I see my kids. We have those two. <laughs> and um, that's about it. Now, it sounds like, you know, you guys are both obviously busy. Um, take us through what it's like to be, you know, parents with such a busy schedule. You know, how do you overcome the, you know, stereotypical mob guilt and other things when it comes to, you know, these competing interests, which is, you know, wanting to have kids who could pick you out of a lineup and a job that you really like? Well, we do have health. Uh, you know, thank God for my family, my first uh, child. So we have three kids. One of them is my stepdaughter and then the 10-year-old and the seven-year-old. So I, when I had my first child, that was only what, two years into the practice here. And we first waited until we hired that third, like the third surgeon, because my husband was like, there's no way you can go on maternity leave and then not have coverage for our practice. So we hired, a, you know, another surgeon first. Then it was all very planned out. Then um, I had my first child. My sister came and stayed with me for five months to help me in the beginning. So that way I could go back to work uh, about two months after having him. And she stayed longer because he was. I was not ready to give him up to daycare yet at that age. And um, with the second one, it was a little easier. I stayed home a little longer because we were already more established, and I could get out for three months with her. And I didn't get. I was not so scared to put her in a daycare then. And as far as mom, I just looked at back at my mom. Like we were okay. My mom worked very hard. I barely saw her when I was a kid. We were much more independent. Um, so. Yes, in the beginning it was hard, just kind of like, oh, my baby, I don't want to leave him. 
but they're okay. They're used to it now. And uh, they understand. And you know, sometimes I did take them to the hospital with me. I rounded with kids and everybody knew it. Um, I had to get a live-in nanny for about a year when I did my fellowship because at that time I was doing a fellowship. I still did journal surgery cases early in the morning, late at night, and then between my cosmetic surgery cases. Uh, that location was very close to the hospital I was covering. So uh, the daycare did not know I was the mom for about a year because they never seen me. <laughs> I had somebody else drop them off and pick them up. And I do have help right now. My father stays with me and helps me. So even with that time that I could take off, I still have help. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think a lot of people think that, you know, have their own thoughts about getting help. But, you know, if you really have these big dreams, and you have all these things you want to accomplish, we know we can't do it alone. Absolutely. And you have to outsource, you know, because I see us, you know, same groups, probably where we met, a lot of girls like, ah, oh, should I feel guilty about hiring a cook, a clean? I'm like, honey, you not you can pay somebody $200 to clean your house twice a week because mm -hmm. for the same time that it will take you to do it, you can make way more money. And for me, it's much more stressful to do stuff inside the house. Like I don't cook, I don't clean. And thoughts of that are going to get me tachycardic. Now, <laughs> if somebody comes to ER with gunshots and stabs, my heart rate goes down, right? Because I'm used to that stuff. Like I can handle that, <laughs> right? And I'd much rather go and take somebody's gold blood out. And yes, Medicare doesn't pay much for that, but it's still going to be more money uh, for that one hour of work that I'm going to do or 15 minutes, whatever it takes me to do gold bladder than cleaning my house. <laughs> yes. Right? So my, if we, My dreams are bigger than our, doing the dishes. <laughs> you trained for 20 years, you know, for us doctors, we trained for, I don't know how many years, right? 15, 10, 20 more. And you continue to do like continuous education all the time. It's not to make 50 bucks an hour, right? Use that money, use part of your money, hire people, let them do that job. That's what they're there for. And they can clean for you and they can cook for you and they can shop for you. And there's absolutely no guilt involved about it. And then you can take your kids with you if you want to and have a nanny with you at the same time. If you need to, like have an assistant to hold your purse. I don't care if that's going to make my life more like less stressful and my time with kids more valuable, then that's what I'm going to do. I think that's the biggest time saving tip that I've, you know, offered other people. It's that the one thing we could save time on is the drama of worrying about things like that. You know, not just worrying about the task itself, but worrying about worrying about the task. <laughs> yes. Just the thinking about it. Like, yes. the, as I said, the thinking about it is what tires me. Yes. I mean, it doesn't mean I'm not going to get up and wash my dishes when I need to. Of course I will. It's just like everyday tasks. Mm -hmm. I don't need to do that. I don't have to. I don't need to anymore. Yes. The ability to hand off things that we know we don't need to be a part of that are not, you know, top of the license things that we could do, like passing that off to other people does not have to involve any mental drama at all. Absolutely. And then I also look at regular people, the non-doctor people, how they enjoy their life. Mm -hmm. um, my assistants and my uh, MAs, every weekend, they will take the family. They have they don't work on the weekends. And they would go off shopping together, movies together, dinners together, and all these activities where I know they're spending, it feels like more money than I made at the time. And here I am on the weekends 
you know, doing payroll in the beginning. First seven years, I did all the payroll, all the QuickBooks, all the account, whatever updates, um, time adjustments for every employee. And once we got to 50 employees, I was like, you know what, I, I got to do something else. But everybody's at home. And here I am, the only car by the building on Sunday doing the stuff, right? Um, and looking back, I saved a lot of money doing that because every weekend everybody went spending and I was working. But now I'm like, I can do this too. I can be like a regular person who doesn't have to, you know, not spend time with the family on the weekend. Right. So it's, I don't know why people will feel guilty about it. I know there's a lot of people like, well, if I, if I spend time on the weekend, but I'm not working in my business, I feel guilty or vice versa. If I'm working in my business, I'm not spending time with my kids. Kids will be fine. Mm -hmm. I think there are research coming out showing that even if you don't spend physically too much time with the kids, but instruct them on what to do, they actually do well, they do better. I completely agree. I mean, providing them some independence and some room to grow, but knowing that we're, I mean, we're their safety net. I mean, that's, we don't need to be the necessarily helicopter hovering, but we definitely need to be their safety net. We need to have some presence for sure. But what that looks like is different for everybody. Absolutely. Just make your own happy place. Mm -hmm. So what does the future look like for you? So you've got the four surgery centers and, you know, it looks like you're starting to now make more room for yourself with this, the Mondays of, you know, being free on Mondays. What does it look like for you in the future? Where do you see yourself going? Well, the reason to have free Mondays to have more time to build more surgery centers. <laughs> I love it. It's freed up for administrative tasks. Uh, but yes, the plan is to build more surgery centers. So we either build or acquire. So it's not just building from scratch all the time. Sometimes we'll acquire practices that are retiring or for whatever reason, going under and we can rehab them and rebuild them into surgery centers because sometimes that practice might have been just an office uh, or something else and um, continue to grow with the way healthcare is going in the United States. So if we have 25 surgery centers, I think then maybe we will settle. But uh, during this time, we are weaning off from the actual surgical and clinical care from me and my husband and having other doctors perform those tasks while we put more time into more administrative work. Perfect. And what is, I know a lot of people ask too, uh, you know, they say, oh, private practice is dead and all these other things. What is your answer to that? You know, I mean, medicine is so far the only profession that allows an annual decrease in salary. <laughs> what is your take on the financial landscape of a private practice and these surgery centers? Well, I believe that Practic private practice is not dead. Uh, a lot of employed physicians who've been trained in those large institutions are being taught that because it's definitely easier to control a group of people who are scared to step outside. And that's why I see people are scared. Um, I've seen comments like, somebody's trying to get gastric sleeve as outpatient procedure. Is that even legal? Uh, people who work in the hospitals never have seen outside of the hospital, never have seen outside of the system. They have no idea what what is outside, and it scares them. For the hospitals, just even looking how large hospital systems were controlling doctors during pandemic. Um, I have a lot of friends who are hospitalists, let's say, in a large, you know, systems like that, where they got pay cuts with nothing to say. And and when friend of mine was trying to go, let's unite, let's go, let's talk to the administration, people were scared. 
they'll, they they like, well, I have a visa. I cannot step out. What if they fire us? What if they do? Let them fire. Walk away. This is this is literally what you can do. Hospitals cannot run without doctors, but they are kind of the, the most controlled group of people, right? So people really have to step outside and realize what private practices are doing is completely fine. And you can learn it too. You have to work much harder because once you're in the system, it's very hard to step away. You have a set salary, even if they're decreasing it a little by little by little, right? They're chipping away at it. And they're making you work harder and harder and harder for it, right? More stressful, more burnout. But it's a safety net. Well, I'm getting my salary. If I step away, what am I going to do? And of course, I don't pay myself for salary in the beginning. And I still probably don't pay myself for salary like a regular surgeon um, because I invest back into my own practice for long term. Uh, you know, my retirement strategy, my 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 long term gains, right? Um, I pay myself probably more like a nurse practitioner um, from the beginning because we invested everything back. And so, yes, I might not spend as much in the beginning. Now I can. I mean, I have that freedom now. But in the beginning, no, I don't. I didn't have a huge house like a lot of doctors buy right off of the residency because they get that big, you know, big check. Uh, we lived in a regular, I think our house, first house was, well, first two years it was rental. And then once we got the house, it was maybe $300,000 house, nothing, nothing extravagant. Um, but that was enough. And, you know, just kind of, you have to have a mindset that you don't have to do everything like, like the other person. And mm -hmm. yeah, you're going to have to work extra hard. Yes, I worked 24-7 the first few years, right? Because I was on call in multiple hospitals and I was running a private practice. So it's a different type of work, but it's yours, mm -hmm. right? At the end, it's yours. It's not, nobody else can take it away from you. And I love this idea of, you know, people searching for employment for a safety net. And, you know, what you've demonstrated is that you are the safety net. Like that's the entrepreneur spirit is is really believing in yourself as I will not fail. Like I am my own safety net. I don't need anyone else's validation or help. You know, I can be the safety net and I will guarantee my success. Um, and that's just something that we're not taught this whole entrepreneur spirit of, you know, being able to create things for ourselves, but then we get it for ours. And I think a lot of people are discovering this, you know, with the dissatisfaction of employed uh, practice. And as, you know, more of these bigger things, you know, the bigger they become, the more rules they have to have to manage all these people. And so I think a lot of us, you know, surgeons are kind of stepping into like, I mean, is this all there is? Like, I'm just going to be told what to do and I can't, you know, do all these things. And, and, you know, I, it was a previous podcast where we talked to one of the guests who saying that, you know, everyone's saying like in, employed is the trend. And I was like, that's not the trend we're seeing. <laughs> the trend we're seeing is, you know, we want the control back. We want our lives back and our practices back and be the, the surgeons that we want to be with the practices that we see fit, you know, and that is, I think the trend that some of us are seeing um, that hopefully will take hold. You never know, but because it, it is hard. Um, another aspect of the entrepreneur spirit is, you know, making sure since you are creating this, you know, are you creating a prison? Or are you creating a playground? You know, we, we create these like borders around what we're going to do. And you can easily trap yourself into working seven days a week, 
or you can, you know, create these new and innovative things to where you bring in people and you bring in finances to where this now becomes like an experimenting ground and something that's fun rather than something. And I've experienced both of them, by the way. <laughs> yeah, you can trap yourself. Um, and if you're scared of making every step and every move, it, it, it is a little scary sometimes. You know, you work so hard, you have all these loans. What if? And I, you know, my husband, I think he's like, it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. We will be okay. And if you think about it, what's the worst thing going to happen? If I lose my practice, well, I, I can always get an employed position. I'm a surgeon, right? You have a skill that nobody else has. Um, open another practice. <laughs> like literally right now, I'm like, I'll just open another one. If anything happens, all I have to do is like they used to back in the day, you open up, slap a thing on the door. Here I am. And start all over again if you have to. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not scary anymore. Yeah. Once you figure it out, once you learn what to do, and now we can experiment. And my, hus my husband, he joined Navy because he's a patriot, not for any other reason. You know, a lot of people join um, armed forces or Navy because they wanted to pay for loans. No, nope, he had no loans for school or nothing like that. So he's he's like, I just always always wanted to do it. So now he's traveling because he has his boot camps and things. I'm like, okay. I'm going to join flamenco class. Um, so we, you know, so now it's not like we can step away, but you have to have an open mindset. You have to have a goal and a dream. And the goal is not make money. Goal is not, um, you know, it, it it's not that linear, like I want to do just this one thing. It has to be kind of like a big plan. You know, I want to retire happy. Like that's it. Yes. <laughs> make yourself happy doing what you're doing. I love what I do. Um, so don't get scared. Don't get, um, just because you hear something in the news or they say, it's always, they say, they say, don't <laughs> care what they say. Yes. What are you saying? What is your own research show? Mm -hmm. I love that. And, you know, the more that we are able to kind of like put the power back into ourselves and to put the trust in ourselves, the more the they's of the world don't have as much hold on us too. And I especially love your idea. I mean, I think the the idea of failure of like what, what happens, and I, I love that your response to this is, which is kind of like so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> love it. I mean, you got this far, right? You started from nothing. You started yeah. like for the medical school, right? Residency, like you went through all of this. How's anything gonna scare you now? Yes, nothing will scare you now, and and you never start from zero, which is I think your point too is like you never start from zero. You always start from experience. Um, and so even if something doesn't happen, you, it's it's all about the pivot. It's not failures. It's just pivoting. Exactly. Well, what would be the recommendation you'd have for someone, you know, coming out of residency? Like, what would you recommend that they consider? Like, how did you learn all these lessons? Uh, just trial and error. Don't, don't, don't be afraid to fail. Mm -hmm you know how I always say they say failure is not it's not a failure it's a lesson learned yes. learn from your lessons I think that's perfect well I this has been so great I mean you have such a different mindset than than we have been taught and this is something that I've evolved to but I'm pretty sure you were born with all of this <laughs> this I, I, I get I get scared trust me even now sometimes like are we okay and husband's like we're fine okay yeah. if you say so I mean, isn't that what courage is, is that you feel fear and you do it anyway? Yes. 
but we see it all the time in medicine. We train for this. Right. How many times are you, are you, sir? What's your specialty? General surgery. Yeah. How, when you, do you remember your very first case? Like when somebody gave you a knife and said, this is your case. Yes. Weren't you scared? Of course. Things got tight, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you still did it. You did it anyway. And the next time wasn't so bad. And next time it was better. <laughs> and then you get something else different. What do you do? You open a book, you review some YouTube videos, read the book again on the steps of the surgery. You know what to do, even though you already knew what to do. You do it again. Yes. Right? And, and you do it. Yes. I used to read a book like probably every week, even though it was the same case over and over again. I would just review the steps again, mm -hmm. just in case. Or maybe there was something new. Or maybe there was a new technique that came up on YouTube. I don't know. Yes. I literally use YouTube sometimes. I'm like, oh, that looks good. Let me see if that works for me today. Like, that's going to be the extra technique behind, you know, in my mind. And it was scary sometimes, or somebody comes in with something weird. It's scary. We still did it. Mm -hmm. So I think business is kind of the same. I completely agree. It's the feeling fear and doing it anyway. Just there so you go. can be better the next time. Because the prizes are great. <laughs> yeah, and you get that little bit of adrenaline rush a little bit. It, it just builds up in our mind. I mean, and like you said too, like at the end, we're going to go through all of this. At the end, we're going, look what I did. Yes. <laughs> and it's good. Exactly. It's worth it. And I could do it. And I think that your point too, we've all been trained for this. This is not new stuff. Like we are all capable of doing it right now. Absolutely. This has been such an incredibly inspiring story. And I'm so excited to share it with everyone because I think that people just have no idea that the hero's journey is like that you have is just possible for them. And so, I mean, I think the way that you simplify it, the way you, you know, drop any drama with it and make it so easy and effortless, which of course we all know is not easy or effortless, but at the same time, you know, someone looking at this could realize, Hey, you know what, this may actually be possible for me and may make the steps to do so. And I think that's really inspiring. Thank you. For more information about the BOSS Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.